Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada. I'm here again with Cody Weckerly and Adam Nesvold, and we're we're continuing in our series on the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. Uh, we've talked about many issues and, and themes and subjects so far. Uh, if you haven't listened to those first, I don't know, handful of episodes, go back and listen to those. But in this episode, we're going to talk about the ordinances, and we believe there's two ordinances given to the New Covenant community uh, that Christ ordained, uh, two signs and, and symbols or seals of the New Covenant community, and that is obviously baptism and the Lord's Supper. So obviously we think about covenants, and we think about covenant people, and God in His grace gives His covenant people signs and symbols, visible representations of His covenant promises so that we as His people can remember these promises more easily. Uh, we just are a people that are so prone to forget things, and sometimes it's helpful. Well, it is helpful to have a visible representation of the covenant promises. And so you can think of the Noahic covenant, and obviously the rainbow was that covenant sign symbol that every time, obviously, it rains and the, the sun shines through the water and we see this rainbow, it should remind us that God isn't going to flood the earth anymore. Uh, and so it just, it's a helpful reminder, obviously in, under the, uh, the old covenant, there was circumcision and it was a reminder of God's promises to his old covenant people. But the new covenant is again, as we've been laying out, we're Baptists, which means we come from a position of what you might call discontinuity, that there actually is a distinction between, uh, the old covenant and the new covenant. And therefore then the way in which the covenant sign baptism operates in the new covenant is 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 distinct from the way in which circumcision circumcision <laughs> circumcision operated under the old covenant and that's going to set us against those who have more of a pedo baptist position so we'll get into that here in just a second but Cody you planted again a baptist church you believe in the reality that we should immerse people underwater who have have a valid profession of faith in the name of the triune God, and that this is really the entrance into church membership, that baptism is is the ordinance or sign of entrance into the covenant community. Uh, do you just want to maybe unpack that a little bit, or what do you think about baptism? I mean, baptism is kind of an important thing for Baptists. We name ourselves kind of after it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well... I think it's probably important to highlight where we all agree on baptism yeah. and the meaning of it, whether you're Lutheran, Methodist, or what have you, right, Presbyterian. Um, we do believe that it is a new covenant sign. Yeah. Uh, we disagree on the mode of baptism. Mm. Can one be sprinkled? Should they be immersed? Uh, dunked three times, like the Orthodox. Dunked three times. Uh we also disagree on the meaning, in, and this kind of gets back to some of the other podcasts that we've recorded, right? Right. What is the church? Right. We kind of had to deal with that question. And in terms of, and we just, we kind of know Presbyterianism better than, say, other movements, because we have a lot of friends who are Presbyterian, so we get to have this kind of conversation with them yeah. uh, frequently. Yeah. Uh, but we understand, uh, as Baptists, our position to differ from Presbyterians in that 
uh, we do not believe that this is a continuation of the Abrahamic sign, mm-hmm. okay? This isn't just kind of an updated version of the Abrahamic right. covenant. Uh, and we do believe that only those who have genuinely been born again by the Holy Spirit are members of the Church. Right. And should be visibly recognized as such as right. well, right? Uh, so... Where we all agree is that uh, this is a new covenant sign. It represents one's uh, membership within the church. Um, but who is to be included, mm, right? Who is this it, to yeah. be performed on? Right. And I just, when I read my Bible, have come to the position of being convinced this is a sign that belongs only to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Yep. And. I'm sure we're going to get into discussing this, right? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, the major support of that would be the fact that there is no baptism performed on infants. Right. Uh, I'd be fine uh, making room for children, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but you cannot, I cannot comprehend uh, performing baptism on somebody who cannot intellectually comprehend and articulate the gospel. Right, right. And... Uh, you know, I just always like to point out the Great Commission, going to Matthew 28, right, where it's, we're told, go make disciples of all nations, yep. baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's even in there. It's the, there's an expectation that these are people that can be shaped and formed uh, through mm-hmm. teaching. And it's applied immediately after being baptized. And this, there isn't going to be a waiting period of, okay, they're baptized when they were, what, three, four, five months old or whatever, and now there is this this period of years before they are actually even to the intellectual point to where they can start to comprehend and even even read. <laughs> like, children don't read until they're four or five, six, seven years old. Like, I mean, good night. That's, that's years before they can even start to really understand how to obey God's commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I think just to refresh, even from our other episodes, especially the one that we did on the relationship between Israel and the church, paedo-baptists, or covenant theologians, I should say, because paedo-baptism just means infant baptism, yeah. and Catholics are paedo-baptists in a sense, and we're kind of—we're distinguishing, obviously, Presbyterians a lot, a lot, way away from Catholic paedo-baptism, totally different. Yeah, and uh, that's using it in the most broad definition possible, yeah. since we know that— their position is a baptismal regeneration. Yeah, view. ex operato, opera, ex opero operato. I think is is the Latin, basically by by the practice or whatever, by the work alone. Like it's effective, so it it regenerates or washes away original guilt or original sin. That's what the Catholics believe. This actually cleanses you of legitimate sin, and 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 is yeah, it actually is a part of actually being saved. If you're not baptized, and you can't really be saved. So we obviously don't believe that. Presbyterians don't believe that. So we just see it as uh, an outward expression, a sign, a symbol of something that's already taken place, or hopefully should take place in the, in the, the sense of the Presbyterian view. But again, this goes back to the relationship between the covenants, even. And the Presbyterian position really is that there is one overarching covenant, and they call it the covenant of grace. And every other covenant falls underneath 
that one overarching covenant, the covenant of grace. So therefore then, if, if, if all covenants are connected to this one covenant, you know, including the new covenant and the old covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and they're all connected to this one covenant of grace, well then it's implied then it, there's this presupposition then of what they call continuity. And therefore then the signs operate in the same way. And the, and the covenant communities are, have this sense of continuity too. They're, they're, they're similar. And what we said in our previous podcast is that they're, the old covenant community was truly a mixed community. So, you know, the covenant um, made with Abraham, there's this, there's this word offspring used. And, and in the immediate context around that, it's very clearly speaking of a physical offspring, a biological seed from Abraham, mm-hmm. and he's going to make his biological offspring into a nation, and 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 so yeah, the the old covenant community was a physical, biological, ethnic specific people. But then when we get into the New Testament, we see you know Paul in Galatians, Paul in Romans chapter four, this idea that actually though there's a there's a different sense of Abraham's seed, and that's a spiritual seed, and and the spiritual children. Of Abraham are those who believe in Christ through faith, those who share Abraham's faith, which justified and made him righteous. So you have the physical descendants of Abraham through his physical seed. You have the spiritual descendants of Abraham through through you know the spiritual seed, which is faith. And and so the old covenant com- community, obviously they're they're physically descended from Abraham you know they're they're literally his physical children but among ethnic israel were those who actually shared the faith of abraham mm-hmm. they actually believed in the promises through faith and those are the people that we believe are old testament saints those who are they were actually saved and we would think of moses we would think of david we would think of samuel as you know people who were authentically had true faith and we're going to see him in heaven one day and so they are they are both in a sense the physical of the physical seed and of the spiritual seed of of Abraham. And so the old covenant community was a mixed community. But the mark or the sign of circumcision was a physical sign like it was and it was done on on a, on a physical people who were physically born. They were physical descendants of Abraham. Yeah. And in that sense the person who the sign was being performed on uh, they had no input in this decision. None. It was done uh, for them. On the eighth day. On the eighth day. Yep. Only boys. It was the decision of their parents to honor the command that was given. Right. So that's just clear. Like, the, the sign for the Old Covenant community is, is, is it's for a physical people. And, and, but yet we know that some of these physical people had a spiritual faith, and so the community was mixed. And that's why there was this constant charge and urge to, to keep the covenant, to keep the covenant. Don't transgress the covenant. And so there was, there was some who were, in a sense, true Israel, some were that weren't. But the thing about what makes the, the new covenant so distinct and different, though, is that as Jeremiah prophesied, as Ezekiel did, the new covenant com- community is going to be a people of the Spirit, a people who have the Spirit, who have their hearts of stone, taken out, replaced with hearts of flesh, who actually know the Lord, and the community is built on the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to use some other Old Testament language, uh, they have circumcised hearts. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's no longer an outward physical thing. The new covenant people is a spiritual people with with circumcised hearts, not you know outward appendices or whatever <laughs> things. <laughs> we know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but and that's a huge, like we said, a huge distinction. That's a mark of discontinuity. And therefore, then, if the old, if the new covenant people are a people who have circumcised hearts, then the new covenant people is it's not a mixed community like the old covenant community was. It's not mixed. It's not made up of physical descendants of Christians and and then those who have faith in Christ. No. Clearly, even in the Old Testament, the prophes- the prophecies are clearly saying, no, the new covenant community is they're all they're they all share Abraham's faith. They all have faith. They're all they all have the spirit. They're all alive. They all have circumcised hearts. There's no mixture. And so then, obviously, if there's no mixture and they're a spiritual people and they're not a people that are just born physically into it, then the sign can't be performed on children. Now, I am kind of just raising this spur of the moment. I'm yeah. just thinking about it as you're talking over here. But if indeed the uh, if baptism is just a replacement of the Abrahamic uh, sign, mm. uh, you know, going back to the early church, why even get baptized? I mean, they commanded baptism, but if it's just a replacement of the, you know, it's kind of like, well, you've already been circumcised, so why be baptized? Right. If they're just completely synonymous with each other. Right. There obviously is not a perfect one-for-one correspondence. Well, even think of this. Why was there even a debate? Do, Do Gentiles have to get circumcised? If they, if they thought that baptism replaced the Old Covenant sign, and, w- and there was this continuity between the two, then they would have never had the debate of, well, should you get circumcised as well? Mm-hmm. They, were all, they all agreed that you should get baptized. That was clear. But there was still this debate of, do we get circumcised too? Which means that even in the New Testament time, when the apostles were still on the earth, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, we already talked about this on our discussion on congregationalism— they did. They saw a great discontinuity between baptism, this new covenant sign, and circumcision, the old covenant sign. I mean, <clears throat> baptism has always been different uh, because it, like, even even before Christ gave it as in order for the church at uh, you know, like during the Great Commission, baptism was fundamentally different. Because otherwise, what was John the Baptist doing, mm-hmm. and why did Jesus get baptized? Right, exactly. They were both circumcised, and John <laughs> the Baptist was baptizing people who were who were, who were circumcised. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what purpose did it serve if it was exactly the same thing? Mm-hmm. It fundamentally serves a completely different purpose. Right, and it's a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness exactly, of sins. Exactly, because yeah. what was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, and then be baptized. Exactly. And obviously we can—that word, the Greek word, baptizo, this is where we can kind of get into even—and we don't have to, I might just hit <clears> on it quick, where we get into the mode. It, it Like you translate it, it literally means immerse. Yeah, or to dip. To dip, yeah. yeah. So, and, and you read the language of John's baptism, and— Clearly, Jesus went into the water and came out from the water. Like, there is this very 
mercy type language going on there. I've heard some people say, oh, that just means he went down the bank of the river and they came up out of the bank of the river. And that's what it means that he went down and came up. That's a stretch to me. I think it makes more sense that he went under the water and came up out of the water. And why that's so key and why we believe in the mode of immersion, one, yeah, baptizo more. The more natural sense of the word. More natural sense of the word, but also because it's not necessarily, so people think this, like, and this is intuitive, but it means like going un, un, under the dirt or into the grave and then coming back out. But the problem with that is we're, we're kind of reading in our own way of like we bury people in cemeteries mm-hmm. under the ground. But they, that, didn't, that wasn't the practice back, th- back then. They put them in tombs. So they didn't go under the ground. Uh, now, obviously, I guess you could, you could think about like if you go to hell or you die and you go down to Sheol or something, you're going down. But the point was is that baptism, in a sense, corresponded to Noah and the ark. And what water did was when you were immersed underwater, it killed you. It was a way of, of killing you. And that is obviously what happened with the flood. God flooded the earth because it kills everything when you drown underneath water. And so when you are put under the water, it represents death. You are dying because if you go under the water, you're going to die. And then when you brought, are brought back up out of the water, obviously it's re, it's resurrection. It's yep. being made alive. Mm-hmm. So that's why we think immersion best pictures what actually happened to us. And even the Bible even describes that Jesus' death on the cross was a type of baptism. It was his baptism, too, a spiritual baptism where he spiritually took the sins of the world and died. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, you're talking about becoming a totally new creation. Yeah. And by having the entire self go under the water, it's representing the totality of the work that God is performing. He's not just performing it on one part of you. Right. He's redeeming the entire person. Right. So uh, it just seems to capture the fullness right. of what Jesus does in salvation. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's the most natural sense of the word, but also the the, the picture and the imagery and also the consistency um, is something that we're noticing as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus' baptism was a baptism also of, that he, you know, ordained for us, a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but also of the Spirit. Yeah. So we have this additional aspect that John says, you know, he who comes after me, you know, whose sandals are not worthy to untie, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So when we baptize people and immerse them underwater in our churches uh, as a as an initiation into the covenant community it's it's expressing something that we believe already happened in a spiritual baptism which we would call conversion mm-hmm. or being born again and and that's the whole reality too that even that in John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus clearly shows some discontinuity between the old and new covenant people He's saying, like, yeah, you've been physically born, Nicodemus, already, but I'm saying you got to be born again. Mm-hmm. And Nicodemus is all confused because what do you, what do you how, mean? How, you have how, to... can his, how can a person enter his mother's womb? And, <laughs> yeah, a second time. A second time. He's yeah. like, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm saying. Don't marvel that I say this to you. You must be born again of the Spirit, water in the Spirit. So, so that's 
that is just a clear picture of discontinuity. No, the new covenant people are people who are born again of the spirit. They're spiritually alive. You don't enter into this community through physical birth. Mm-hmm. So it just blows my mind that Presbyterians can 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 read that and just not see that there is discontinuity here. You don't enter the covenant community through physical birth. Yet they believe that their children are covenant members. And therefore then they believe that the new covenant community, the church, is comprised of both believers and non-believers. Mm-hmm. Because obviously they know that they're baptizing their kids and it's not guaranteed that their kids will come to believe in and accept the promises that have been given to them. Uh, and so then there is just this, it just creates a mess. Mm-hmm. And it creates mm-hmm. this, it's just, it's confusing. Well, wait a minute. Now those who have baptized, been baptized into the covenant community who are covenant members, well, shouldn't they then take communion? Now there are some Presbyterians who who do believe in pedo communion. Uh, it's rarer than than those who don't believe in it but there is just this reality of like well are they are they taking part in church uh discipline decisions are they taking part in in voting on certain issues uh uh like it just complicates the whole the whole issue Mm -hmm. but nonetheless that's i guess that's what we believe about baptism uh, is that yeah it is it's the sign of the new covenant and the new covenant is comprised of only those who have truly been born again by the Spirit, and they have circumcised hearts, so baptism it represents the circumcision of the heart, and and so it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's representing a spiritual reality. You know, the interesting thing, obviously, is you look at just contemporary Christianity today, and baptism is just very much not a big deal, right? Yeah. I, I would say that in the average evangelical church, um, we really are like, ah, uh, you know, baptism is kind of that, uh, call it like a, a second step of faith, right. right? That can happen anywhere down the road that you want it to be. Maybe it's two years, three years, five years, ten years, right? Um, but, you know, we're not going to encourage people uh, too quickly to get baptized because, you know, hey, you can always do it later. Yeah. But when you look in the New Testament, it was like the moment you turned to Christ, you got baptized, yeah. right? And... Uh, and I find that fascinating. Yeah. And, well, and to yeah. I mean, that's a second order effect of, you know, decades or, you know, hundreds of years of baptizing infants <laughs> when they don't have the choice or the mental capacity to understand the consequences of the decisions that they're making. Yeah. It, it probably leads to a very important discussion where, you know, if it's just assumed that you're in the church, right? And there's been this reaction. We've seen a lot of false converts. A lot of people say they are Christians, and then they're not Christians. But, you know, they grew up in the church. They're baptized in the church. Therefore, they just think. And so it's probably led to a maybe an overreaction, we could say, mm. where the evangelical church is just like, well, baptism doesn't mean anything, because just look at all the people who were baptized, and they're not Christians. Right. And you got to kind of explore that a little bit deeper, right? I think the question we need to be asking is, what was truly the problem? And... It was clear that there was a there was a gospel missing there, a mm. gospel message right. there. A, uh, you know, call it counting the cost, if you will. Right. Right. Where it was like, yeah, you know what? Those people didn't have to hear a message of what they needed to leave behind, what they needed to forsake, yep. what they needed to repent of. It was just presumed 
they were part of the church. Right. And so, obviously, the, the message needs to be recovered, but so does the practice. Yeah. You know? Um, and so, uh, we at our church, Harvest Plains Church, we, you know, if we see someone come to faith in Christ, it's a conversation we're having immediately. Yeah. Right? And uh, truly, when you think about what you do in baptism, it always brings back uh, the the person who has placed their faith in Jesus or uh, is said to have placed their faith in Jesus. It takes them to a place of counting the cost mm. because all of a sudden there's a social cost a public reality for following it. Jesus. Yep. And then suddenly they're going, what are my parents going to think about this? Yep. What are my friends going to think about this? Mm-hmm. And... It seems like no matter who you are, there still is a sense in which people understand. Like, baptism represents me fully giving myself to something that I've never given myself to before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, I guess there's still some people that just, that they don't think of the heaviness of it. Um, but I would say that most do, right? They get it. Uh and so I just find it to be a very revealing thing. If a person is afraid to get up in front of others and say they follow Jesus, then what does it actually say about the genuineness of their faith, right? right. Yeah. Yep. And, I mean, how many times have you had the conversation with somebody who professes to be a Christian but hasn't been baptized yet, and you say, well, you know, you, sh you should get baptized. You know, we have a baptism Sunday coming up soon. And their response is, well, I'm not ready. Okay. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> like, the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip. Well, what's keeping me from being baptized right now? Look, there's water right there. Yeah. Nothing. So, and I think even, it's a, even a, just a second order, like, effect of of just, you know, just think of Christianity in America over the last, you know, number of decades. And for a while, like, just how convenient being a Christian was. No, no longer is that the case. But it was the case for quite a while in American history. Like it was, it was a social plus, a social positive, to be considered a Christian, to be a member of a church. Like if you weren't a member of a church fifty years ago, something's wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like who are you? <laughs> I even remember when I was in high school. I graduated high school in twenty fourteen. I remember growing up, and I mean, it's it's a small town, you know, Minnesota, a few thousand people, rural Minnesota town for the most part, very conservative. But man, everybody said they were a Christian. I think we had one kid in my grade who said he was an atheist, and we thought it was the most bizarre thing in the world. Like, what? I've never even encountered one before. Mm -hmm. Now, I look back, hindsight, and yeah, most weren't legitimate Christians. But they said they were, and they were baptized, and they were members of a church, and their families were. And and so, I, it's just a nominalized type of Christianity where there really isn't a cost. If anything, like there's a cost to not being considered a Christian, like maybe like it was in Christendom, you know, when Constantine took over and all that type of stuff where, oh, if you're not a Christian, I mean, back then it was against the law. I mean, mm -hmm. you had to be baptized and to even be a, a citizen in good standing in, in, in the empire. And, and that really messes Christianity up. Mm -hmm. And it really messes up the significance of, of the, of the ordinance. Because, I mean, if you're going to get baptized in an Islamic country right now, that's more real in a sense of, like, there's a cost. I'm going to get kicked out of my family. I might even get killed by the state 
if I do this because mm. conversion to out of Islam is illegal. And so baptism is the ultimate like declaration. I'm no longer Islamic. I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah. And I think that in countries uh, that have, uh, you know, other religions that are very popular, yeah. uh, that's very much the case. I remember being in Michigan, living in Farmington Hills. There was a very uh, big Indian population. Um, and in North Dakota, we think of Indians as Native Americans. I mean, no, it was like India, India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, we had a number of uh, Indian families in our church. Uh, one individual, his name was Pradeep. Uh, you know, he was married to an unbeliever. And uh, I think he's still married to her. I mean, I've been gone now for a while, so I've lost touch with them. But, you know, when we talked to him about baptism, he's like, yes, I really, really want to be baptized. But also at the same time, uh, my wife has said that if I get baptized, she's moving back with her parents um, to live with them in India. Mm. And because in India, everybody understood that the moment you got baptized, it was it was understood to be a moment where you were becoming truly sold out for Jesus. Right. You were turning your back on your former religion, and you were only going to do that which Jesus um, commanded. Right. <laughs> yep. Well, we've, you know, again, we've lost that just because of the cultural practice, and I think in, in a significant way because of the practice of infant baptism within our own culture, mm. uh, where, again, you, you don't have to weigh the cost. It's not your decision. It's somebody doing it for it. you. And, in fact, it's such a... It's, it's such a shock for people still today in our area uh, to have a church insist on uh, being baptized as a Christian yeah. post-faith in yeah. Jesus yeah. to such a degree that when we planted our church, I remember getting a letter from someone yeah. who attended an evangelical this. free church, and they were very adamant that we should not plant a Baptist church in rural North Dakota because it would not grow, and it would not be popular in the community, and that that was overly exclusive, and that was not the kind—I mean, this person insisted, that is not the kind of church that we need in Castleton, North Dakota. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my encouragement, I tried to be very gracious and yeah. patient and say, you know, maybe just wait and see. Come, <laughs> come, come and show up, and, and then be a judge of— does it really drive people away? No, it doesn't. Why? Right. Because, I mean, you show up on a baptism Sunday, and it is the most joyous Sunday of all Sundays, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It because is. it is such a celebration, and it inspires people, yep. and it encourages them, and you truly get to, in a, in a very tangible way, right, um, as it is intended to do, you get to see the gospel on display. You get to hear people share their tes testimonies of how they were running in one direction, and Jesus saved mm -hmm. them and moved them in a completely opposite direction. Yeah. yeah. So I think that this um, is such an important practice for us to be faithful to, yeah. and it's a practice that I think needs to be uh, recovered um, because with the recovering of the practice also uh, also comes the recovering of the message itself, I think. Right. Absolutely. Now, I know that, obviously, we would, we would say, okay, well, okay, there's this big debate. There's been this huge debate over credo-baptism, pedo-baptism, you know, for now, you know, almost like a couple thousand years. 
Uh, so we would expect, though, that, okay, well, probably the early church, first century, second century church, probably since they ran around with the apostles themselves, uh, they probably had it right, whatever the practice was. And in the earliest, like, teaching, we could say, on the functions of the church or how the church is supposed to operate is what we have, we call it the Didache. And the Didache, man, do you have the years on that by chance? Can you just look that up? Like, when was the Didache written? It is believed to have been written between AD 70 and AD 100. Oh, it is claimed to be early? the work of the 12 apostles. Yeah, that early. Man. Okay, nonetheless, <laughs> the Didache has uh, an article on baptism. And this is what it says. Just listen to this. And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So obviously that is consistent with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And then it says in living water, which literally means in running water. So they thought that was most um, would would follow after the fact that Jesus was baptized in a river in the Jordan River. So running, flowing water. But if you not if you have not living water or running water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot in cold and warm, but if you have not either, pour out water thrice or three times upon the head into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Now that's very interesting. Think of how early this document was. And they're saying that the one who's being baptized, as well as the one who's going to baptize the one being baptized, let them fast for one or two days before they're baptized. Yeah. And Come, you go make those infants yeah, fast. Make those babies. They don't they can't have mama's milk. <laughs> like what an odd idea. Like they had no there's nothing in that that would make you think, "Oh, but this also applies to infants." Mm-hmm. And this is the earliest again, one of the earliest the, the earliest documents we have um, that speaks of church life. So that's that's really illuminating and and in obviously documents and stuff we don't have a defense we don't have a defense against infant baptism until the third century Mm -hmm. so that's key too uh which probably means that it wasn't really a common practice before the third century if there wasn't a formal defense made against it yeah and i think this is just important to point out because uh if you have this discussion with uh, Lutherans and Catholics, they're going to argue from the standpoint of church history. Yeah. And if you're arguing from the standpoint of, well, what has been the most popular uh, mode represented throughout church history? Well, yeah, it has been infant baptism. Right. right? Nobody argues with that. Uh, but there are documents that clearly point in another direction. Yeah. And although church history itself is not definitive, it can be a helpful guide. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about something like the Didache that was specifically supposed to be a church manual for worship, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it dates back again as early as it it does. You kind of go, okay, well, what does the Bible have to say? And that's ultimately our authority, right? It's not church history, uh, it's not church tradition. Uh, it ultimately comes back to the Bible, and uh, 
And so I think that, you know, Baptists are in in uh, good standing as they look at church history where it's like, hey, uh, there's, there's good support as you look back uh, to a time not far removed from the apostles themselves. Yeah, exactly. So a question that is raised against Baptists is that, well, okay, if baptism is a, a visible representation of, of salvation, well, you Baptists, you baptize, you rebaptize and rebaptize and rebaptize. And it will, if it didn't meet your perfect standards, you baptize them again. And yeah. That, what counts as a legitimate yeah, baptism? Yeah. What's a God honoring baptism? Right. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's a great question, and obviously you've got to think about that a lot. That's a very common um, occurrence yeah. that people come into the church, and they have come out of a background where they were baptized as an infant, and they're asking the question, do I have to get rebaptized?" And I always just—I I love to explain it this way, where, you know, I know it's a little shocking for them to hear it this way, but it's it's kind of like, well, you didn't get baptized. Exactly. That thing done to you— so you're not getting rebaptized. You're not getting rebaptized. You're getting because, baptized for the first time. Exactly, because that thing that took place when you were just a baby wasn't actually a baptism. Right. All you did was get wet. Yeah. You don't, you don't remember it. <laughs> Somebody splashed water on you. It yeah. was not a baptism. Because as we look in the Bible, the definition of a baptism is a person comes forth to be baptized who has placed their faith yeah. in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins. Right. What does Peter say? What shall we do after they're all, their hearts are torn and convicted after his, his sermon at Pentecost? Acts chapter but, 2, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Acts 2, I have it open here. Read Acts, it. Acts 2, starting in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers— or, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every, everyone whom the Lord Jesus calls to himself." Now, so the, the I mean, Baptists say, "Look, it says yeah. right there, and and this promise is for your children too." Yeah. Now, and <laughs> and this is yeah, and and you know, like this is the verse where, or you know, and and, and that's like you, you bring up a good point, but like I want to point out the order. He says, "Repent and be baptized." The order is very important. He didn't say be baptized and repent. He said, "Repent." It's the exact same message that John preached. Yeah. It's the exact same message that, that Christ preached. Yeah. Repent. And what happens when a sinner repents? They they are saved. Right. They're made spiritually alive. Right. Spiritual birth. Yep. And, and it, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, go for it. You, you, uh, so when you are saved, then you are baptized, and that's what Peter is telling them. Repent, and then as you, as you guys have already discussed. Then you may, you are baptized to have that public declaration that shows what has already happened to you spiritually. Yeah, because you've already repented, and what Paul or sorry, what Peter is saying next 
is not what, yeah, this is where I would disagree with our Presbyterian brothers, is where they interpret verse 38 as saying, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all whom are far off. The Presbyterians would like interpret that as saying that the promise is for you and your children, meaning that the children are included in the promise, in the new covenant promise. I, I, I disagree with, with the, what Peter is saying is that the promise is available to everyone. The promise the is available is for your kids. The too. gospel, the, the new covenant promise is available to you and to your children and to everybody well, yeah, in the world. Because it says, and those who are far off, right? Right. So does that mean we should just go baptize everybody then? Because that would follow the train. Okay. Right. If it's for me, well, then I have to baptize my kids mm-hmm. and my infants, and I have to baptize everybody who's far off. Right. Well, that doesn't, that's incoherent then. Yep. So it's obviously not saying that. Yeah. It's saying that the gospel is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Your kids and those are all around the world. Yeah. Or or you or you could look at it and say the promise, the new covenant promise is for because he says for you, for your children, for those whom are far off, and for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So um, I suppose a more accurate way to interpret that would be to say that it is for everyone who is elect. Yeah. Well, for everyone who repents and believes. Right. Yep. And the whole point is that infants yep. can't repent and believe. Right. And that's kind of the crux of the issue. Yeah. And and I, I think that, you know, the, the where the Presbyterians have a very good point is that God has made promises to parents that if you teach them and raise them in the Lord, that the Lord will bring fruit yeah. to that. Yeah. Now, that does not mean that God is going to save every single uh, child of a believer, of, of a believing couple. Right. But that that God, God will still honor his promises that if you raise your children in a godly manner, that God will reward your, your work and your effort in that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what we see m- most of the time happen. Yeah, most of the time we see that godly parents raising their kids well, their kids do become Christians. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean they always will. Right. God is sovereign in who He chooses, but right. for the and, most and, part, and God is under no obligation to save any sinner. Right. But, but, but like you said, most of the time that that is the way that it works out. Mm-hmm. Well, and you didn't touch on the other phrase in there, which is after the command is given to be baptized, it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. And we are at a unique juncture in the redemptive storyline at right. that point. Uh, we would say that, uh, you know, our argument for baptism is the fact that it is an outward work of an inward reality. Yeah. That implies that something has been done to us before we go to baptism, right? right? Obviously, we've repented, but how did we ever get to the point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? It is because God performed a work on our lives where he did circumcise our hearts, right? He caused us to become born again by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we're coming. So uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, I, I don't think this is a promise that you're receiving the Holy Spirit in light of baptism, okay? Right. which is an argument I could see people making from right. this verse, right? Um well, what's going to happen in the future? 
Okay, this is pointing ahead still at this point, mm. right? I mean, this is this is this is this is now the reality. This is the hope of the last days, right? Yep. Jesus has died. He has been resurrected, and now comes the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to see the Holy Spirit come upon different people groups, right? right. Uh, so I would say that uh, it's not normative necessarily. Exactly. Yep. And that's that's Acts in general. A lot of things are not normative in, in, in Acts because. It's the inception, the beginning of the church, and things, and there's... There, it's a history book. Yeah, and, and even just the fact of speaking in tongues. Like, we human beings sometimes are such knuckleheads that we need, like, kind of like Gideon. Well, you know, you know, make this side of the fleece dry and the dew, and the, the you know, and the, the grass around it wet. Well, do it again, but this time make the, the fleece wet and the dew or the grass dry or whatever. It's like... We just kind of need help a little bit sometimes because mm-hmm. we're just kind of dumb. And and so it was helpful for the apostles to see Gentiles receive the Spirit and then speak in tongues so that they knew, like had happened to them at Pentecost, that this gospel is for the Gentiles too. Mm-hmm. So in order to make sure for these, these early disciples and apostles and the early church that, yes, these people also are receiving the Spirit— yeah, some it would, and they belong, and they belong in too. the same home as right. us in the church. Right there, yep. there, there could be a, a little bit of a switch in the ordering of things just to help out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is, the Bible and the New Testament really doesn't draw, for the most part, a great distinction between salvation, a, a, a circumcision of the heart, a spiritual new birth, and an actual physical water baptism. Right, they're so connected. Now we know Paul. Where even, one is mentioned, the other is certainly yeah, expected that, or implied. And it's like these things are closely connected. There is no concept in the New Testament that somebody who is saved and repents and believes isn't getting water baptized pretty soon. There's just no concept there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a huge deal. Well, Schreiner talks about that actually in in his book. Um, you know, strangers and sojourners, which we've referenced. You mean Allison? Or yeah, sorry, Allison. Is he quoting Schreiner? No, no, I oh, just got the name confused. Oh. <laughs> Al- but Allison talks about it. Um, it's it's on uh, page two thirty six. Uh, he says, as theology as the theology of baptism developed in the third and fourth centuries, various practices were added to the rite. Um, one concerned water, uh, and then he talks about uh, various things, and then uh, but another uh, another became. Uh, a fourth edition, a period of catechesis or teaching uh, on the elements of Christian faith prior to baptism was introduced. Uh, the people who were instructed were referred to as catechumens. Uh, one reason for the delay of baptism was the changing circumstances in which the church of the fourth century found itself. Now, as a legal institution, the church experienced a large influx of new people, some of whom joined the church mm-hmm. for questionable reasons. One way of ensuring that only serious people intent on being committed Christians could enter the church was to make entrance into it a rather long and difficult process. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's... Uh a great segue into this question that people have, which is why do so many churches hold off on baptism? Why don't we do it more instantaneously when Mm. we see someone come to Jesus? Mm -hmm. And that's actually 
really helpful because we look back in church history and we go, well, apparently one problem that they noticed was that there was a whole bunch of false converts, yeah. right? Christianity yeah. became socially acceptable. Right. Again, get, gets back to what we talked about earlier. There wasn't a cost for following Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And today, it's less cool than it, it has been for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years in America, right? But yeah. it was the hip, cool, acceptable thing to do. Uh, it's it's Again, that's less that way today, but... Um, it's, it's part of the reason that we end up saying, hey, we, we want to have a time of making sure this person understands the gospel. Yep. Uh, we are wanting people to get baptized very shortly after placing their faith in Jesus, yet at the same time, we also want them to understand what this actually means, right. that they're saying no to living a life of worldliness and hedonism and they're, they're turning another direction. Yeah. So, yep. great segue into that question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, are there any other thoughts that you have off the top of your head, things that we forgot to mention about baptism? I mean, there's so much you could talk about. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even really get into, you know, the more nuanced views of like what Lutherans believe about baptism. And, and obviously we could talk a lot about Catholic baptism that we kind of, for the most part, skipped over. We, we focus most on the Presbyterians, mainly because they're, we, we share so much in common in, in beliefs with, with Presbyterians, especially us, more of the reform grain and in the Baptist ecclesiology circle or just Baptist theology. We, we love our Presbyterian brothers who also share our reform convictions on soteriology. And, and so we can tend to pick on them because, you know, we're kind of buds, if that makes sense. And you can kind of poke fun at your buds a little bit more than you can yeah. other people. Well, you asked me a question earlier. Oh yeah. Y- you asked me, yeah, I asked you, would we accept someone into membership who was baptized under a Presbyterian mode of baptism? They were sprinkled, yeah, but they were ultimately, sprinkled I didn't know what what age this person was sprinkled at were they sprinkled was the basis of your question I, I said if they were a professing believer and then they were sprinkled in a Presbyterian church would you allow them into membership at Harvest Plains without immersion well okay this is a great practical question yeah. and you know as we talked about the Didache obviously there were certain accommodations that were made yeah uh, you know, depending on what the conditions were, right? right? Uh, was there the availability of water or not? And, yep. you know, um, I, I have just found that me personally, I am totally content with welcoming somebody into our membership and accepting their baptism. If it was something, even though they were, you know, even if they were sprinkled, uh, so long as uh, they got baptized after placing their faith in Jesus. Right. It was their decision. It right. wasn't a decision that was made by someone else, and they knew that it meant they were turning away from a life of sin and turning to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So in terms of the mode, whether you want to sprinkle, whether you want to dunk, uh, you know, we we are very accepting of other modes. Right. Uh, in fact, at Harvest Plains Church, and you were present on that Sunday, yeah. uh, we made an accommodation to... Uh, pour water on yep. an elderly gentleman who was <laughs> fearful of water and also had actually had a health condition. Yeah. Um, 
you know, where it, it wouldn't have been good for him to get his head fully underwater. Right. And, and I think there was a problem with his ears yep. or whatever. And so in that case, he stepped in the tank and we just and you took he, a bucket and he bent over and we had a bucket and we did it three times yeah. according to the decay and uh you know i i think every you know every inch of his body was covered with water he was dripping <laughs> wet after it all uh, but we certainly made accommodations and so um i think in this whole discussion the most important factor is maintaining the meaning of baptism yeah. what it points to what it represents yep yeah. so that's a. I think that's a great place to end our discussion on baptism. We've gone nearly an hour, so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to we're going to turn this into two episodes again, um, as we did with the the one on the church, the definition of the church, and the function of the church. So I'm going to end it here. Thanks again for listening to the Preach and Persuade podcast. Again, if you haven't yet uh, left a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, I really encourage you to leave just a five star rating. If, if you think it's worthy of five stars, <laughs> obviously, uh, I want I want you to leave a rating with a clean conscience. Uh, do what your conscience uh, tells you to do. But I would really enjoy a rating because that helps with discoverability. Uh, but then just, you know, tune back in to uh, the next episode where we talk about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Again, it will be a very fun discussion, I'm sure. Something that a lot of people are don't really know a lot about. Um, you know, they just get just whatever their church did you know that's just normal you know whether it's wafers and plastic cups with you know grape juice in it or wine or whatever there's i don't know that's just what's normal these days so we're going to talk about that and i think it'll be a fun discussion but thanks again for listening have a great day bye